Welcome to the Vorthos Podcast with your host, Matt W. Ruff. Thank you, Bob. So today's podcast, we're going to talk about the, the I was going to joke, the small issue of the church, but it's the, the biggest issue there is, the church. Um, I'm going to start off at somewhat of a tangent. First and foremost, the church is not a building. It's a church building, and it's always referred that way, but the church is not a building. One of the greatest virtues of the Christian faith is that it is life-affirming and culture-building. No other worldview or religious uh, or religion protects the sanctity of life, human dignity, as the Christians does. No other worldview has ever created as humane and, and progressive a culture as Christianity has. Our faith and our experience teach us that the power that created the universe can provide answers to everyday life. And that's from Chuck Colson's uh, book, The Faith, which we will um, deal with quite extensively in the future. We're going to go through that entire book. The challenges today that facing the church couldn't come at a worse particular time. You have the rise of atheism and anti-theism and radical Islam and Hindu and Buddhism and, and all that just when most Christians don't have a clue what they believe. You know, how can Christianity be practiced when it's not understood? And now with, with these attacks, uh, it's just a terrible time for the church. Um, and I don't know much more about what to say about our present day of age. The, the church was created by the Holy Spirit and the apostles on the day of Pentecost. I mean, if you go and start reading Acts, Peter offers a speech. They perform... First, it's, it's the speaking in languages. I don't want to use tongues because tongues has certain connotations. When Peter spoke his language, the, the Spirit made it so that a German heard it in German and an Italian heard it in Italian. Um, so at the Pentecost, sermon that Peter gave, suddenly the church was born, basically. Now, it's hard for us to understand the setting and how it happened because it's it's such a different time. We, and I'm, again, American, that's where I come from, but I've I've traveled to probably 40 countries and, and I, you know, that's the same there. We go to American football games, Europeans and South Americans and others go to soccer games, but it's still a stadium, you know, for athletics. There isn't spiritual 
ramifications there. I mean, there are, but that's not what we're here to talk about. The, the, the Jewish festival brought everybody back to Jerusalem and suddenly these people are hearing things that, that are earth chattering to them. So much so that they accept the apostles teaching on the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And within this one sermon, 3,000 people are added to the church. Now, understand the church as it existed when Jesus left. You had the 11 apostles because Judas had killed himself. They elected Mathis as their 12th apostle. And you had probably a total of 120 that were in the crowd. I mean, uh, Jesus' half-brothers, uh, Jesus' mother, um some other women, some other men, obviously, and families. Um, but it's about at 120 that we're in this, you know, this was in the church, if you want to call it that. Now, and, and people that study this say when they talk about the 3,000, they're most likely only talking about men. And it's not an exact number. They, it's not like a guy with a, sitting there was counting with a little, you know, little thing in their hand, and click, 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 and, Oh, it's exactly 3,000. It's a estimate. Could have been 2,500, could have been 3,500, but it's 3,000. And they generally only talk about men. It doesn't really matter if it's men or women and men because 3,000, other than a Billy Graham crusade, I've never seen that many people ever turn to Christ at once, ever, in, in much bigger stadiums where it was you know, huge publicity leading up to the event. Unlike this, which is just kind of, he walked outside and as people walking by, started preaching. So there's that. At the end of the second chapter of Acts, what did they do with these? Because they have no buildings. They, they have a room that they're in that holds 120 people, barely. And now what they do? So they all go to their houses and they're constantly meeting, having fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, and being taught by the apostles in various houses across Jerusalem. Within a couple of weeks, it's already grown to 5,000. So that, that's how the church got started. Now, fast forward all the way to today, 2020, in the middle of a pandemic in America and across the world. And what does the church look like today? Well, uh, as a, I live in the outskirts of Nashville. Now, for a hobby and something I just enjoy doing, I have a drone, a decent drone that can fly two to three miles pretty easily. From my house... I mean, I could pull up Google Maps and do the same thing. I bet you there's nine or ten churches in this vicinity of two to three miles. Nine to ten different churches. Some of them are from the same domination, but they're all in they're all separate buildings. And I wouldn't go to any of them. And, and the reason being is 
is that I think the church is so far gone off course that it's you know it's time for another revival, and I'm just hoping it happens in my lifetime. Um, because if I won't go, there's a lot of other people that won't go. That, and that's where that's the that's somewhat of the reason I started this podcast. I have five tests for any church that I visit to join. And to be quite honest, I've been to plenty in the last couple of years, and they all fail way outside the two to three miles radius that I just described. Now, most people when they hear that, oh, you're just being too picky, or you're looking for the perfect church. Well, there's nothing wrong with being picky. Um, let's say you wanted food, and let's say you wanted you know, a particular, yeah, say you wanted sushi. I hate sushi, so it's a good example to use. And so you're in an area that you're not used to and you don't know whether you pull up Yelp or one of those platforms that we have today. And, you know, if it's got one star review and says, yeah, eight there. And then Montezuma's revenge hit me for, you know, two days and there's multiples like that, you're probably inclined not to go to the place. So being picky is not altogether wrong. When it comes to theology, it's even more important. Why, if you're, if you're not a Catholic, and there's a Catholic church just down the road, you're probably not going to go to a Catholic church because their, their system is totally different than Protestant Christianity. And understand there's plenty of differences inside Protestant. So you got the Catholic Church. There's a Mormon Church, which again is a totally different gospel. And then you got Jehovah's Witness, which is clearly a cult. That's all in this area. Okay. You've got a church, you've got a couple independent churches. Got it to a synagogue, and that doesn't count. You've got uh, a, pres- a brand new Presbyterian church. You've got a, a Church of Christ. You've got a Baptist. You've got a Methodist. You've got a liberal Presbyterian, another, a liberal Presbyterian church. You've got another Baptist church. You've got a big Church of Christ. You've got charismatic church of some sort over here. And, I mean, you've got plenty of variety, okay? Um, so, why can't I find a church that is biblical, as I call it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's not for lack of trying. Um, my, my, I didn't have these requirements when I was younger. I mean, when we were married with kids and we moved into, say, Nashville, we had trouble finding a church. It took longer in Nashville than it did in Memphis or in Little Rock or in Hot Springs or in Fort Worth. The first church we went to in Nashville was just right down the way from us. It was the Baptist church. 
Amy Grant and her husband at the time were in the Sunday school class we walked into. So that's kind of interesting. And they just weren't friendly. I mean, they didn't have a meet and greet. They didn't really, you know, they didn't pay you any attention. And we were clearly didn't know what we were doing. We were just had moved here. Don't remember the sermon all that well, but just remembered how nobody liked the church, the wife, the kids, nobody. Okay. And we tried several other churches. We went to, went to charismatic church and I had an argument with the pastor and about some things. And it took a while until we found in this place, we'd been at Baptist churches. We tried all the ones close to us and we were striking out. So we stopped in at, at Christ Presbyterian and, and, was quite happy. <laughs> there was people that were interested in helping us find, you know, where to put the children in the Sunday school classes and, you know, how, where to go and blah, blah, blah. And the church service was nice. Okay. Um, that's the church we ended up joining. Uh, I wouldn't go there today. And that's a longer story. But I have my five tests that I didn't have back then. It was about, I mean, I was working a job and overly working a job, which means I worked 60 to 70-hour weeks. Uh, and this particular job that brought me to Nashville, I started traveling a lot. I mean, I mean traveling a lot. I was platinum on American and gold on Delta. I mean, that's a lot of flying. Um, but now that I'm older and wiser, and learned a lot. I've got uh, these tests. It's it's not like a you know fill out this form kind of test. First, it's they're pretty simple. Do they believe in all three members of the Trinity? Meaning they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You'd be surprised at how few actually believe in the third person of the Trinity. Well, they may be leaving it, but they don't act like it exists. Okay. So that's an issue. The one that pretty much eliminated all these churches in my area is number two. They care more about people than buildings and spend more than 50% of their income, their gifts, outside the church walls, whether it's feeding the poor or evangelizing or missions or taking care of the widows and orphans and elderlies. That's where they spend their money. Now, remember, this is after I worked for a church for, for seven years and, and I learned how, how it's done. Church budgets, you really should look at. Most of them are terrible. Most of them, and, and they're huge. The church I went to was 2.4 million. 85% of it was spent internally. 85% of it. Six pastors, music, you know, guy, uh, counseling ministry, and children's ministry, children, which had two or three. I mean, it was, we had a staff of 50 people. They needed a director of technologies. That tells you something. Now, I have nothing against big churches. In fact, that's generally been my preference because I like technology. I like helping out in those areas. I'd been a member of much bigger churches than 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 the one that 
I was on staff of. So the fact that they're large isn't a problem for me. But I've come to the realization that we need to concentrate on doing the work of ministry and not just paying salaries to, to pastors. My third one, which the proves I'm not looking for the perfect church, I believe they need to be mostly orthodox and therefore also orthopraxy. Not just right beliefs, but right doing. Mostly. I can accept some major flaws because as long as they're trying, that's all I really care about. Now, that's not totally true because I care about church structure a lot. I will never join, most likely, ever a Presbyterian church again, at least the ones I were a part of, because the elders are lockstep in charge of everything, and if you're not an elder, you have no say. And based on the elders I knew, some of which were really good, some of which not so good. And that's, again, a long story we'll go into with my issue, my history. But I can back it up with my facts that were true to me. They may not be true to you, but they were actually true facts. And there's a reason I believe what I believe and where I'm in where I'm in. The last two of my five lists is they take church membership and church discipline seriously. And that's 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, and the like. And that's, again, hugely a part of my history. I mean, I went all the way to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America twice over a a controlling pastor who could care less about any rules or Bible, and it was all his way or the highway dictatorial style. You know, He thought he was the Pope. Still does. Cause, and last but not least, try to keep its a staff as small as possible and practice biblical pay and not capitalistic pay. Now, I'm totally fine with capitalism. It's so much better than socialism as a form of economics for a country. If a, Every country that's ever been socialism has always been a total failure for people. And, it, you know, look at whether you look at the old Soviet Union or you look at the current uh, Venezuela, it, it, they're all disasters. The Bernie Sanders and their type, who's a ethnic Jew but isn't really Jew, believes in Judaism, definitely doesn't believe in the Christian God. They're they're just evil. That's the best way I can put it. So I'm not saying I'm against capitalism. What I'm against is the capitalism system of pay being practiced in the church. And it's called come about because most of the deacons and the elders that get elected, they're either lawyers, doctors, business leaders, or hugely popular for one reason or another. That's just my experience. But again, because I was a turnaround specialist, I moved every three years. So I have a lot of experience being at a lot of different churches. All that being said is, is we in capitalism the CEO of the company generally speaking exception of you know Steve Jobs who 
and, and he got paid a fortune too. Don't Steve Jobs, you know, said well, he took a dollar as his salary. That is true. He did take a dollar's salary. He also took five percent of the company, and five percent of Apple, which is the only two trillion dollar company in the world, or it was a couple of days ago. It's retreated a little, I think, but it's still worth a ton of money. Five percent of that is an unbelievable amount of money. Okay, um, so yeah, he got paid a huge amount. My point being, the generally CEO makes this huge amount of money. It's that way in the church. The senior pastor made X dollars, and the rest of the pastors made X minus, you know, 10 to 12 to 15%. Except the youth guy, I mean, they could pay those guys, you know, much less, sometimes half to a, a third of what the senior pastor made. And here's the kicker the senior pastor's kids had all left home. It was just him and his wife and their dogs. And so they really didn't need this huge salary. Because when it comes to church, it should be based on need, not on your college degrees and what position you hold. The youth guy who was starting a family, they had huge expenses. I mean, I don't blame them. They wanted to be in a house. I didn't hold that against them at all. And they started having kids and all those, those more mouths to feed. And so... I mean, that's the nature of the deal. The youth guy, you can make a case for it, should gotten paid more than the senior pastor, especially since the senior pastor decided, decided to start writing books. And even though he's writing the books as a staff member, all the money went to the pastor. None of it went to the church as other maybe decided to, to give the, a 10% tithe of, of those royalties. And that's another one of my bones of contention. Uh, but anyway... So those are my five things. We'll go over them real quickly again. Believe in all three members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Cares more about people than they care about buildings and care about doing the work of the church and taking care of the members of the church more than they care about fancy carpet and what off. Mostly Orthodox. Okay. Definitely can't. Take church members seriously and church discipline seriously and try to, to pay people what they need to live and not pay them just based on some salary chart. most unbiblical thing there is in the church is, is the, the business administrator's salary survey. It's a terrible thing. But anyway, why it's a, such a terrible time for the church is, is ignorance. It'd be, I guess, a good word to use. Sixty percent of of church members, sixty percent can't name five of the Ten Commandments. Fifty percent of high school students in a youth group can't tell you who Sodom and Gomorrah was, and one of the multiple choice answer were they married, and a good hunk of them said yes. Okay, that's just how bad it is. This survey was done by one of the big, I'm not talking about something I just pulled out of thin air. The purpose of the church, according to the Bible, is outlined in three spots in the New Testament. Okay? You have... 
three verses, three paragraphs, I shouldn't say. You have the most famous, at least from my perspective, is the the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority is, this is what Jesus said after he's, he's visited the apostles, after the resurrection, he's about to ascend into heaven, and he says this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Let me pause there. The, the, the proper reading is that it's therefore go means as you are going, but let me continue. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the ends of the ages. Okay. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written first. Most likely Matthew and Luke and John, especially John, had a copy of Mark's gospel while they were writing theirs. Mark 16, big caveat, it's not in the early transcripts, and if you pull up your Bible, there should be some big princes around it or some note not in early transcripts. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we don't have, it's not like we have an original of, of Scripture, and we'll get into that at a much later date. But the uh, this was this verse, these, this paragraph we're talking about, wasn't in the originals, the old, oldest copies. Now, it's made it into a translation because it's not, outside of orthodoxy. It fits with what's said in Matthew and what's said in Acts and what's said in other parts of the Bible. Okay? So that's the summarization of that little caveat. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved. The ones that do not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new languages. If they pick up a snake in their hands and whatever poison they drink will not harm them, they will place their hands on the sick and the sick shall be healed. Okay? Needless to say, that's the favorite of a group of Protestants and the, the I call them the Holy Rotors, but I don't mean disrespect. I have a lot of friends they are charismatic, but that's the favorite of the charismatic group. And then you have... Luke and Acts were written by Luke, okay? And so the actual Great Commission is in Acts part of, of that writing. But you will receive, and it's in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. So they all three go together, but they all give different sort of meanings. Now, I don't think it's wrong, obviously, but I sort of created my own version of the Great Commission based on all the three and in, in all the reading I've done to this point. And, and this is still a work in progress, uh, but here we're at, and I, I don't feel like it's best to go ahead and say it until I get it worked out exactly the way I want it to say, so may understand this may change slightly. But my great commission, the purpose of the church is this. As you are going in the world, the Holy Spirit will supply all your needs to win people that are open to the gospel. 
To those that believe, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To those that don't believe, leave them to their destruction. Take the time to teach them all the things they need to be my disciples and not easily fall to false teachers that are plentiful today. Angels and demons are real. The angels will be assisting you and you have the power to drive out the demons. You will be battling against forces greater than mere men, more than flesh and blood, but against the powers of evil. But he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Let the Holy Spirit guide you, and the things that you can do will be signs of my power, i.e. the Holy Spirit's power. Never underestimate God's power, that through you my power is sufficient for any task. And then I have this ending caveat says, for our struggle, which is just a quote from Scripture, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. There's always something greater going on outside of earth. It's in the spiritual realm. Now, some people, again, back to my deal, they don't even believe any of that stuff. So there you go. So that's my current command for the Great Commission. It is the purpose of the church to make disciples of all nations. It's not just to get them saved and then let them be because it doesn't, it doesn't work. If somebody is a, and I haven't done this, I haven't read this in a while. It's been years, and so I'm doing this from memory, and I may get into the moment. But there's a lot of people that believe that Mohammed from Islam is the product of talking to somebody who wasn't discipled in Christianity, and who, and so, you know, he only got bits and pieces, and he went out and created his own religion in Islam. And that's why there's some positive things about Christianity in Islam, but, you know, it is what it is. And I'm not an expert in that area, so I'm just kind of throwing it in. Way too many people are teaching a very cheap grace these days. Oh, you know, join the church, pay your tithe, um, come to church, and that's it. No, that is not it <laughs> at all. It's a very, what I call cheap grace urge you hugely to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. If you want to be one extra credit, read Eric Metaxas's book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer so you understand the man. Understand that book is two and a half inches thick. It's a huge long book. I, for one, like audio. It's great that I'm that's uh, podcasting. Okay, that's how I get a, some information, a lot of my information. Uh, but I read books now much more than I ever did because I have time. You know, I'm retired. This is what I do. But uh, I still like the audio books. Uh, I was traveling from Nashville to Vancouver, British Columbia, and that is a four-day trip. And so instead of reading Eric's massive book on Bonhoeffer, I listened to the audio book. And it was great. It's the best way to digest that book, in my opinion. Even listen to audiobook, I sped it, it up sometimes when 
you know, you can, you can, some things are heavier than others and you can, the great thing about audible is their ability is, you know, speed it up, slow it down. So, and you have a rewind button. So, and you can keep your eyes while you're driving. So you can do two things at once. And to be quite honest, some of that driving is just wide open spaces. I mean, you just kind of, you, you stick it on cruise control and you just kind of go. Uh, so it was wonderful to have something to listen to. But the cost of the Zeitgeist by Bonhoeffer is a great book that every every Christian should read. His big his quote is, Cheap grace is a grace bestowed on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living in incarnate. Very accurate description of cheap grace. My point is that the American Christianity has accommodated to modernity's rationalism and naturalism. And this is from Lee Strobel's The Case for Miracles. The truth is that they don't really expect God to do anything except in their interior spiritual lives. They pay lip service to the supernatural, whereas the Bible itself is saturated with it. And this is, again, back to, and understand, I'm not a charismatic. I've never spoken in tongues. But I honestly, hugely believe in the Holy Spirit and the works of the Holy Spirit. So, in way too many churches, they, they just do their thing, and it's like the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. The present-day church has made much of something that is only mentioned once. If anything I've said isn't controversial, this one will definitely hit high on the list. The word pastor or pastors is only mentioned once in the entire New Testament. Once. In Ephesians 4, it's, the last of, it's next to last of the list of positions in the church. And God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and pastors and teachers. That's it. The only time the word pastors is ever mentioned and then all the writings of the New Testament. Now, Presbyterians who are very picky about this stuff, they're technically call themselves pastors to be, because that's kind of what they're understood to be, but their official position is elders, technically teaching elders, because they have two classes of elders in the Presbyterian Church. So at least they're trying to do that in a sort of way. I don't believe in their two-class system. I don't believe in Presbyterianism, okay? Um, for you know, One of my favorite sayings, it, it's not in the Bible, just to let you know, but I take it as scripturally dissolid, for God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee, okay? Um Presbyterians and their structure I have huge problems with. But they at least get this part. The elders, singular, are supposed to be doing the teaching and preaching. The evangelist is supposed to be doing really the preaching, in my opinion, but we'll get into all that at some point in time, too. Anyway, there's a new book out that I'm halfway through. And I generally hate to recommend books or quote books from something that that I haven't finished. But based on my understanding, this one's going to make it into my list of recommended book. And it's Alicia Childers' Another Gospel. And this is what she says. And I don't have the exact uh, where it came from, but I'll get it 
I'll put it up and I'll definitely reference her book later on. I'm, I'm trying to get her on the podcast without most of us even realizing it. Much of current evangelistic culture and evangelical culture has become a cult of personalities. As human beings, we tend to put people on pedestals and especially pastors. We love strength. We are drawn to the power we enemy want to follow the guy who will stand up for the truth and say what needs to be said, no matter the cost. He may be harsh, but he speaks the truth. He doesn't mince words. He has some rough edges, but so did Peter. These are the excuses people use to explain away the unbiblical, unethical behavior of some beloved church leaders. And how many scandals does the church have? Anyway, continue with the quote. These rationalizations send wounded sheep into the arms of progressive Christians or worse, and they will be accepted to that group. And she's mainly writing about another uh, progressive Christian, so that's where she's emphasizing it. But ultimately, they will be left to bleed out. It's like someone who goes to the doctor to be treated for a, a major wound, only to be given a hug and some comforting words rather than some stitches and some antibiotic. It might feel nice at first, but with no real cure, the patient could lose too much blood or it could come infected. It has to be treated. Okay? And so, yes, I have a real problem with the current structure of most churches in America. And let me tell you something. The Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Church of Christ the two non-denominational church, the church, the Assemblies of God, I think it is, um, another non-denominational church, the Catholics even, they all have the same structure. Okay? Their worship services are obviously different. But they're really similar. Now let's go over to China, which is a totalitarian communist country where Technically speaking, I think Christianity is legal, but in reality, it's not. They have no buildings, no paid staff, and they have a thriving church that's growing and continues to grow by huge numbers. And that's not true of any church in America. Now, please don't think I'm totally attacking your church is it's not real or it's not genuine. It may be. I don't know what your church is. But I can tell you that for the several seven years I worked for a church and the the many churches I've been a part of looking back at they weren't all that helpful to be quite honest. Again I'm speaking of my experience. But when they were helpful, it was the members doing the work and rarely the paid staff. Now, I had a child with cancer, and the church came around and helped me, but it wasn't the paid staff. In fact, I don't remember the paid staff ever visiting. One family was involved early on, but mainly it was members doing the work, which is the way it should be. So, that's, again, where I'm coming from. Here's a total outside analogy, but it works. About, there's 
nothing in this country that has a more negative opinion than the Congress of the United States. I mean, their overall approval rating is like 2 to 5%. Nobody thinks they do a great job. Now, partially that's because Democrats hate Republicans, Republicans hate Democrats, or that's the perceived. Okay? But get this. As much as everybody hates the Congress, they keep reelecting the same guys over and over, guys and gals, over and over again. There's so little turnover. It's not even funny. It's like 3 to 4% turnover. I mean, look at... Nancy Pelosi has been a congressman for, you know, forever. I mean, some of those congressmen, there's one guy that, I mean, 50 years or something like that. I mean, it's crazy. It's time to start throwing people out, and I believe starting to believe in term limits, even though I understand the reason for not having it. But it's called, well, we're too close to it. It's like everybody in these surveys, oh, yeah, the Congress is terrible. Oh, but my congressman, he's not great, but he's pretty good. And so they keep voting for him. Again, probably true about your church, unfortunately. You think it's good because you're comfortable with it. You know it. If you didn't like it, you in America especially, you have the ability to go to some another church. And there's so many, at least where I live. And actually, as I said, there's tons of them. Rome wasn't built in the day, is the old saying. And church reform will take time. And to be quite honest, I don't think we have a lot of time. You know, in a small church, there's less of this issue, but it's still there. Now, one of the books that's the way up, way up on my recommended list is is a guy by the name of Dr. Rick, Nick Ripkin. It's called The Insanity of God. Now, I believe that's one of the worst titles I've ever heard for a book, to be quite honest. I think it's a terrible title. <laughs> Still do. But it's it's really one of the most powerful books I've ever read. It's simply amazing book. And to be quite honest, half of it is just a typical missionary book. It's what I call a two-hump book. There's this whole story of him being a missionary, and then there's the whole back end. And the back end is the most powerful. Not Because I've read so many of the of the missionary books, they all are very similar. They're their stories and they're all wonderful in some ways, but I never read anything like the back half. I'm going to take a piece out of one chapter of that book and simply try to just read it to you. And this is not my strength reading. I don't prepare a script for my podcast. In fact, I do my podcast based on a a keynote, Apple, you know, keynotes, because I used to do present PowerPoint presentations all the time. That's how I'm used to doing, you know, points on the deal. And I make up, I do my talking in between. So let me set the stage. Dr. Ripken had, had went to China to talk to the secret underground church that's in China. That's vast. Now this is in, it's in early two thousands. So it's several years. I mean, several years old, but doesn't really change the meaning of the book. And he visited church leaders and and is doing research on church and how they grow under oppression. I mean, he was smuggled into this meeting. Now, 
if you know anything about the Chinese church, if they're caught, they go to prison. Okay? So everything is underground. They don't have signs. They don't have buildings. Um, you know, it's all meeting in people's houses. And so, but they, this, and this is, you know, they've been around for quite a long few years. That's why so they've been around since the, the original Chinese. Now, I understand this too. Back before the world wars, people in especially the UK sent missionaries to China and there's famous, you know, in America sent missionaries to China and all that time, the amount of people one to the Lord was less than a million people. But after the communists take over and everything, the underground church has grown to massive, massive numbers, much Somewhere estimated as high as 100 million Chinese Christians. Nobody really knows. And this particular group, they, they, they pretty much knew their number to be in the tens of millions. Okay. And they had arranged to get home, uh, church planners and church leaders together at a secret conclave kind of thing of in the, outskirts of some Chinese town. I don't know where it's taking place. It really is mute, but understand it's, it's basically a farm and they're sleeping on the ground except for a few people have, you know, some places to sleep that are a bit covered, but that's all they've got. So, but it's way out in the country. And Dr. Ripken was doing these interviews and they decided it was so ed- so uplifting they wanted him to do the the interviews out in public and and this is toward the end of his time with him and it was kind of the end, very end in the Q&A okay I hope I've set the stage well enough it says Dr. Ripper this man said right now there are 400 of our leaders in prison their families are suffering many of them have no financial resources for school fees for rent for food or clothing they have nothing Now that you've heard our stories, perhaps you can go back to your country and tell the people about us. When you do that, maybe you can gather an offering and help us take care of the poor families that are suffering while their husbands and fathers are in prison because these 400 families had lost their dad because he got arrested preaching the gospel. And, And I understand that request is not outside what had been done in the Bible. I mean, Paul was always collecting money for other churches, so that really wasn't uncommon. Their request wasn't unbiblical, to be quite honest. But just listen to the rest of this. It was a sobering request. After I heard this, I've seen him. I felt inspired to tell them that I was ready to make it my life's work. I would vow to tell their stories of the committed house church leaders here in China, wherever I went, surely there's no more needy, deserving people in the world. Surely there was no nobler cause than to rally the Western church to support these churches in persecutions. Of course, I would commit to helping them care for the struggling families of these Chinese believers who have sacrificed so much for the Lord. That's, that's him thinking. That's not him talking. I looked up 
over the gathering of courageous believers, fully prepared to promise them that when I returned to America, I would indeed tell their stories. But when I opened my mouth, no words came out. The second time I started to speak, intent on assuring them that I would do everything in my power to make their cause my cause. But when I opened my mouth, again, nothing came out. A third time I attempted to speak, and again, no words. For some reason, I was unable to speak. Nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I'd been rendered speechless by the Holy Spirit. In that moment, I prayed a silent prayer. Lord, speak. There's a reason you're not letting me speak. Please just give me the words. I've been a serious Christian for long enough that I recognize God's voice. And because this wasn't the first time I'd heard it, when I sensed the message that I should share, I started arguing with God. And I do that all the time. I tried to tell God why this particular message was wrong. At the same time, I felt commanded to speak his word. Looking at these leaders who had, by now, become dear friends, I asked, how many believers do you have in this house church movement? It was an odd question because they just told me that answer. We'd just gone over those figures time and time again. Patiently, one of the leaders answers, as we have told you, there are over 10 million of us. And so here's what he ended up saying. We've only been together for a short time. I said slowly, you don't really know me, and I realize I don't have any authority over your lives or your churches. I'm not your pastor. I'm not even one of your leaders. I'm just an, a guest of your country and of you. I know I have no right and no real authority to say this, but he knew there was a but coming. I feel that God had spoken to my heart just now to keep me from saying what I was planning on saying. And I feel now that God would have me say something totally different. If I'm correct at what I'm feeling, if it is, in fact, a word from God, then we should be very careful to hear it. I paused, took a deep breath, and plowed forward. If 10 million believers in this movement cannot take care of 400 families, do you have the right to be called yourself the body of Christ, the church, or even followers of Jesus? Now that was some stinging words. The words brought no reaction. I looked at everyone, saw 170 faces staring at me in icy silence. <laughs> I had said what God had told me to say, and I had nothing more to say. And I was hoping that God would put no further words in my mouth because that was, that was really hard to say. I didn't know what else to do, so I retreated a little bit to the back of the platform. I feared that I had offended the people that I had really grown to love. I plopped myself down on the bench and sat there alone. A few minutes passed. The friend that had arranged all this came and offered me moral support by coming up and sitting beside me. I had no idea how many minutes passed. It felt like an eternity. Then I noticed the woman had started crying. Then I noticed several people crying. Eventually, the entire group was crying. It went on for maybe 30 minutes that way. Finally, one of the leaders rose to his feet, wiping his tears from his face, walked up toward the flatman standing in front of me and said, Dr. Rifkin, you are right. 
you go home and you and your wife continue to do what God has called you to do, and we will continue to do what God has called us to do. You were totally right. If 10 million of us can't take care of 400 families, we have no right to call ourselves his church. Now that, my friends, is the, is the power that exists today when you listen to the Holy Spirit and you preach what he tells you to preach. Now, that's on page 257 to 259 of Nick Rinkham's book, The Insanity of God. So that one I do have the reference for. Um, it's a it's my top recommended book. That's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to take care of the members and to grow the members to do the work of ministry, to do as they are going to the outer points of word or preaching the gospel. It's not the purpose of the pastors to do that. The pastors are just simply shepherds. They're supposed to help the flock, and they sure shouldn't be paid for it. Just like teachers know, I shouldn't say no, but most Sunday school teachers don't get paid. There's way too many of them, okay? You do it because you have the gift of teaching and you want to help grow the body of Christ. Now, I have nothing wrong with paying outside speakers who make their living that way. Paying them a reasonable amount is called a, you know, a, an honorarium. And let's be so reasonable. I mean, some of the honorarians that some of these guys get paid to speak at conferences. I mean, that's there's these church conferences I, and before COVID, of course, all over the country. And people would make a really good living. They write their book. They make money off that. And then they go to speak at all these conferences and get paid $5,000 a pop plus expenses. Great living. I don't make 5000 I never made $5,000 a week, I don't think. Um, so, but that's not, that's not real Christendom. Real Christendom is doing it for as little money as possible. Instead of staying in a fancy hotel, stay at somebody's house. Instead of, you know, don't get me wrong. When I go to Africa, I fly in business class. I write the check myself because I'm six foot three and I just don't fit in coach. At sixty one, with my body, if I, I'm useless if I get after that. If I was to be that long, and I've done it before, and and when I was younger, I could do it. But at this age, I've got to be in business class to 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 make that kind of flight. So I'm not speaking like somebody who thinks getting paid for certain things. And some people say, oh, that's, that's terrible that you do that. I go, well, I'm spending my own money. How's that terrible? Every mission trip that I've gone on, I've paid my own way. I've not asked. I mean, occasionally I've asked for people to give money. They give them a few bucks, but nothing close to what it costs. So, It's time to return to the basics. We need to sit at the teaching. 
We need to fellowship. We need to break bread. And we need to pray. And we need to do the work of ministry. Now, the mission of the church, I come from a Protestant belief. I refer to the church throughout the future. I'm talking about the Protestant Christian church. I totally think Luther was right when he tried to fix the huge fallacies in the Catholic church. And, and they would, if they could have, they would have did like they did John Hus and, and Wick, no, they didn't kill Wick, Wycliffe, but they did kill uh, Hus and, and many others. You know, Catholic church had a way of dealing with people who disagree. Recant or we burn you at the stake. I mean, um, it's not one of their, they don't do that anymore. I don't think, but they still have their ways. But, um, I don't, I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't believe Roman Catholicism is the way to go. I think they're messed up. Um, that we share a lot of the same beliefs. Let's be fair, especially from serious Catholics. The trouble is I have, there's only a few serious Catholics that I know, but anyway, so the church is about doing the great commission. Wow. This is 58 minutes already. So I'm going to end it there starting next week. We're going to do a, we're going to take on the main principles of the gospel, the core beliefs of Christianity. It's going to be a 12 to 15 part series, much longer than the 10 commandment version in which we hopefully at the end, we'll know what the basic beliefs that we share with, you know, if you're Baptist, you share with Lutheran and Presbyterian. We all have some huge overlying principles. It's what I call orthodoxy. If you don't believe these things, then you're outside of orthodoxy. Okay? And if you're still with, with me here, thank you very much, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vorthos Podcast. Visit Vorthos.net for more information. That's Vorthos, V-O-R-T-H-O-S dot net. You may follow at Vorthos on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on the Vorthos Podcast are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Vorthos Podcast. Any content provided by Matt or our guest are their opinion and not intended to malign or insult anyone or anything. Matt W. Ruff can be reached at mattwruff at forthos.net. That's M-A-T-T-W-R-U-F-F at V-O-R-T-H-O-S dot net.